Hollywood is rated LGBT Radio, starring your host, Rob Watson! Welcome to this installment of Rated LGBT Radio. I am your host, Rob Watson, and today we have a really important show for you. Um, I alluded to it last week. Uh, We are covering a new film that is hitting the film festival circuit. Um, This one deals with a story that desperately has needed to be told, and it tells it from an interesting perspective. Um, and that is the AIDS crisis in Los Angeles. Um, historically, and in a lot of the pieces that have been put out on film, on theater, television, um, about the AIDS crisis, have centered in New York City. Um, they've centered in San Francisco. And, oh, yeah, L.A. had that problem, too. Um, this film centers right in Los Angeles um, and tells a lot of the L.A. story. It is told from the perspective of AIDS Project Los Angeles, the founders of AIDS Project and how that organization came to be. Um, And with the growth of that organization and its prominence, um, it also um, really worked with Hollywood directly um, to get them involved get um, celebrities fronting um, the speeches about AIDS, making the public aware of it, um, and um, putting momentum forth, um, you know, both an awareness to try to find a cure, um, as well as other factors, um, including to dampen down misinformation around it. Um, It was the pandemic before our pandemic. And um, when we went through the COVID pandemic, a lot of us who lived through the AIDS crisis um, had some reminiscence and both comparisons and differences of of those two experiences. Um, Our guest is um, one who has been with us before, just a few months ago around Thanksgiving, um, filmmaker Jeffrey Schwartz. Uh, Jeffrey joined us previously uh, with his film Boulevard which was this wonderful, true love story. It was a documentary about um, a a gay couple that were trying to turn the piece Sunset Boulevard with the help of Gloria Swanson into a musical version of of Sunset Boulevard. This was before Andrew Lloyd Webber got his hands on it. Um, And the relationship between them, Gloria Swanson, and how in very many ways it paralleled the Norma Desmond um, and story at, uh, in the fictional piece. Um, fascinating story. He has pivoted big time um, on the film that we are going to talk about today, which is called Commitment to Life. And Commitment to Life is an event that APLA uh, puts on, I believe. I believe they still put it on. Um, and that is the central theme of the documentary of how APLA came to be, the AIDS crisis, and um, a lot of different elements that have to do with that. So um, in just a few minutes, we'll be getting to Jeffrey. In the meantime, 
I do want to welcome on board Brody Levesque. Brody is the editor of the Los Angeles Blade magazine. You can find that magazine at losangelesblade.com. And uh, Brody, what is going on today? Hey, good afternoon, Rob. Good afternoon, good morning, or good day to our listeners. And today's been kind of a fairly busy news day. But first, I want to go to Washington, D.C. Representative Angie Craig, who is an out uh, lesbian. Actually, she is the first uh, openly LGBTQ member of Congress from the state of Minnesota, was attacked uh, physically uh, in an elevator in her Washington, D.C. apartment building. This came as a uh, statement from her chief of staff to the media, news of the attack, that is. Apparently, uh, Representative Craig defended herself by throwing a cup of hot coffee at the attacker, uh, and then she went to the Hill. Uh, U.S. Senator uh, Amy Klobuchar, also from Minnesota, tweeted, to give you a sense of how strong Angie Craig, Minnesota, is, she went straight to the Hill this morning and attended a meeting in the Senate with the governor and me and several members of our delegation about legislation for the people of her district. No one messes uh, with Angie. Uh, late word from uh, the Capitol Police. Uh, they are charged with security for members of both the House and the Senate. Uh, they are currently investigating uh, what happened. They are being assisted by the Washington, D.C. Metropolitan Police. Uh, so hopefully we'll have something uh, soon on that. Also on Capitol Hill this morning, uh, Robert Garcia, who's been on this show, he's a freshman uh, representative uh, from California, California's 41st Congressional District, uh, and a bunch of other House Democrats filed a resolution today to expel New York Republican Representative George Santos from Congress. Now, this move, of course, is largely seen as symbolic, given that House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has been resistant to any calls for the uh, resignation of Santos. Uh, McCarthy has said repeatedly that he'll uh, let House ethics uh, and the internal investigations uh, sort itself out. Uh, according to uh, our Hill sources, uh, Representative Garcia had actually met with the Democratic minority leader, Hakeem Jeffries of New York, uh, and uh, got the uh, blessing from the minority leader to go ahead and pursue this action. Again, it's kind of symbolic as McCarthy doesn't seem to be inclined whatsoever uh, to, you know, move on Santos unless South Ethics does. Uh, Santos is currently under investigation by the Federal Bureau of Investigation, two field offices, one in Washington and the New York office. He's under investigation in Brazil. He's under investigation in the district that he represents by the district attorney, Ann Donnelly, for uh, Nassau County. Uh, he's been caught in repeated lies. He has basically become a caricature of a bad, bad uh, story uh, in a little bit of a fun uh, segment here at the State of the Union address on Tuesday. Uh, U.S. Senator Mitt Romney from Utah was walking out. He spotted Santos, uh, who was waiting to shake President Biden's hand along that aisle that the president walked out on. And uh, <laughs> Romney got in Santos' face and told him point blank, you don't belong here. 
Um, and of course that led to an exchange, uh, between the two of them. Uh, however, I thought that was kind of amusing. Romney just was like, yeah, you're a liar. You don't belong here. Uh, you know, this is just, he, he told actually members of the Hill press corps, some of my colleagues that, uh, and this is Romney speaking to us, that he was kind of struck by Santos's shamelessness, you know, this guy's plagued with all sorts of, you know, scandals and lies. You know, it, he should have been quoting Romney sitting in the background, staying quiet. Uh, but of course, obviously, he wasn't. Uh, so that's a little right. bit of humor that goes with Santos, even though it's not really well, that funny. Yeah, although it's interesting that Santos um, did interviews um, telling the press that Romney was, quote unquote, not a good Mormon. Like Santos is the <laughs> expert on what being a good Mormon is. Um, but, um, and then he also tweeted out to Romney, um, well, you'll never be president. Um, sort of like trying to, to, to poke the bear in, in that way. Um, I want to go back to the thing with Garcia, though. Um, mm-hmm. So is this a, a bill that he has proposed to throw uh, Santos out, or is there some other um, complaint that he's that they're lodging? I, basically, uh, what Garcia and the other Democratic reps are asking for is a resolution to expel him from the House, but it would take the, it would take the House to do it. And, and the problem is that type of thing doesn't get signed off on unless the Speaker and leadership okay to it. McCarthy is not going to do that. Um, trust me when I say so. It, so it won't. It won't. It won't go up for a vote. In other words, no. And McCarthy will block it. it, it it's okay. It's basically it's a symbolic gesture. You know, again. You know, saying, hello, this guy is just garbage, shouldn't be here, needs to go away, yada, yada, yada. So, no, it's symbolic. You know, yeah, Mac- it's McCarthy, just interesting because if it, did, if it did get on the floor, it would not take very many Republicans to sign on to that uh, for that to be the majority. So, anyway. It, well, with the exception of a few of the radical ones, there are quite a few people on the Republican side that want to see, you know, want to see Santos go away too. Yeah, this is just right. kind of a universal thing. The problem, and, and this is what's been pointed out, McCarthy's majority is so narrow in the House that even losing, you know, the grifter uh, would cause damage on tight votes on issues where some Republicans would cross over and join the Democrats. Um, and that's really, you know, what it comes down to. Uh, McCarthy just can't afford to give up even that one vote. You know, the irony here is Santos is probably going to get removed anyway. And Governor Horschel in New York uh, will call a special election. The people of that district are so angry about being bamboozled, not just by Santos, but by the Republicans. You know, many of the leadership, including some Republicans uh, in that district, have already indicated they would back Zimmerman, uh, who, by the way, is also openly gay, uh, who was actually the candidate. There was it was against Santos that Zimmerman was running in this last election, and Santos barely beat him. So, really, at the end of the day, um, we're we're saying that if this should this happen, uh, Zimmerman probably in a special election would slide into the seat. 
so McCarthy's going to lose that edge anyway. Um, so it's just, again, it's it's what we've come to expect from the Republicans. I it just, yeah. Yeah, what can I say? Yeah, they are what they are, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, the last thing uh, I wanted to mention. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I wanted to see if you had anything on um, Huckabee Sanders. Oh, Governor Sanders. Oh, yes. Everybody loves Sarah. So she gave the Republican response to um, the State of the Union address. And in there... One of the things that she said that caught everybody's attention was that she said there's no longer a left and a right. There's just, you know, crazy, and then there's the rest of us. And the other thing that she did was that she phrased the argument looking at, you know, the attacks in terms of a culture war. So most of the attack that she launched against President Biden was really not of substance. It was more or less along party lines. And it basically was along the lines that we have seen in terms of attacking our community, particularly our trans community, the drag community, and, you know, issues that have to do that are important to progressives. And and she really defined the coming fight. And the coming fight, more so than ever before, at least from her segment of the Republican Party, is us versus them. And she she defined it. The the arguments defined. It's there. Um, I got polling data back this morning. Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida, who is the Republican front runner unannounced for 2024, was up on Trump by 13 points. Um, Governor Huckabee Sanders, of course, as you know, was Trump's you know press secretary. Uh, and she's also more or less, you know, in the same vein of thought, still a Trumper thumper. The, the thing that could be interesting to watch here would be the division within the party. Um, and we're going to have to watch her because she's going to be the one that's going to kind of tell us where the rest of the party may go. She does really, however, as far as the overarching issues that have to do with progressive things, she falls right into the crazy category. We do expect, at least some political types like me expect, some fracture uh, in the Republican Party because of Trump. So we're waiting to see how that's going to kind of sort itself out. There's a good chance, a really good chance, that Trump is going to divide the Republican Party by fracture because he's not going to get the nomination at the rate that this is starting to look. And if that's the case, he probably would go out third party, which would do effectively the same thing that Ross Perot did to President Bush 41 uh, right. in, the, in the battle against you know Bill Clinton, ironically also the governor of Arkansas. So it, it is looking that way. Um, but Sanders' entire response to the President's State of the Union address, quite frankly, was toxic. Uh, there's yeah, no other way of really defining it. It was very toxic. No, it, no, it it really was, and it was toxic because it does what a lot of this uh, right wing rhetoric has been doing, which is it incites violence. I mean, it is mm-hmm. you know it was dehumanizing. It was you know it was trying to reduce the people that she doesn't agree with to crazy people and less than human. 
you know, so um, I, I really feel like it was it's almost borderline hate speech. Um, I was seeing reading what the Trump campaign has sort of devised in terms of a strategy where they are welcoming in competition um, for the nomination. And their strategy is to go back to 2016 with Trump with a crowded field. And with Nikki Haley now declaring, you know, that that could start happening. And he could actually prevail in that kind of scenario because, you know, the, you know, he has a smaller core of hardcore MAGA people that are Trump to death. And if, the rest of the vote in the Republican Party gets spread um, less than that percentage, then he'll win the nomination, not by fiat, but by attrition. So um, most of us, anyway, most of it, us think it's, the fight's going to be with DeSantis, and in a fight there, he doesn't he he doesn't beat DeSantis well, because it's, I want to Ron DeSantis him. is more palatable. Okay, believe it or not, to the oh, God. well. Yeah, well, to Republican voters, maybe. But um, I want to see Trump indicted. I want to see him out of the running altogether. Um, you know, it's like the the promise of indictment on many fronts is just very wearing. And if I read another article about how any day now, it's like, forget it. Go away until we're, we're ready. Until, until yeah, it's here. Pretty much. Yep. Yeah. Agreed. All righty. Okay. Well, let's let's shift to a, a different topic, um, yes. and that is going back back to Los Angeles um, in the early uh, '80s and um, a crisis brewing there. Uh, and with that, I'd like to welcome um, Jeffrey to the show. Jeff, welcome welcome aboard again. Hi. Happy to be back. Yeah. Uh, so so when we last talked. Um, and we had a great conversation about Boulevard. Um, you had talked about a couple of upcoming projects. I think one was um, the uh, uh, Celluloid Closet um, Part 2. One was Showgirls, and one was a documentary on the film Cruising. And boom, <laughs> out you come with a, <laughs> um, AIDS in L.A. <laughs> How's it all going? You have so many balls. <laughs> yeah, totally. How did, how did this project well, come about? Well, Commitment to Life is a documentary about, as you mentioned in your introduction, about the AIDS crisis in Los Angeles. And um, APLA, AIDS Project Los Angeles, which is now known as APLA Health, you know, they were about to hit their 40th anniversary. And they started thinking, you know, this is a story that really needs to be told in documentary, especially as time goes on and the younger generation just doesn't know the history and how much we went through to become the community we are today, you know. So it was really their idea to uh, make a movie, but they're not movie makers. Um, I'm good friends with uh, a fellow named Ron Sylvester, who used to be on the board of APLA at the time, and he's our executive producer. And uh, they brought me in to sort of talk about what this could be, and we decided we were going to, uh, tell the story of the city of L.A. and using sort of APLA as the, if there's going to be a main character, it's APLA, because everything kind of springs forward from APLA. We use the creation of APLA and the role they played over the years and, and how they brought Hollywood into the fight uh, as our story. And that was about three years ago when we first started. And then we got hit with another epidemic right in the middle of uh, developing this movie. 
And we started making the movie and filming our interviews in uh, November of 2020. So we were right in the we were right in the thick of it at that point. Right. Yeah, it's. Um, I have to tell you, it it was hard for me to watch because I was there for all of it. It's like everything that yeah. was depicted. I was in that community at the time, and you know, I marched in the first AIDS walk. Um, raising money for APLA. I remember when APLA was created, um, you know, and I, the first political campaign I was involved in was the 64 Noan LaRoche. And um, I was actually, I was really glad to see you covered it. How, where did all those material come from? You, you included so much footage um, over the years were they just sitting in a closet somewhere in, in canisters? How did you, how did you get all that, and how did you go through it all? Uh, well, I appreciate hearing that you were uh, a witness to all of this, um, and I would imagine you can tell me if that was the case, but I would imagine this brought back a lot of uh, harrowing memories. And uh, I think for the generation that lived through this, it, it might be a difficult watch, uh, but. Um, I hope that people will stick with it because the, the film really is a hopefully is a hopeful movie and a triumphant movie at the end because it really does show how a, a small group of dedicated people came together to, to fight this thing and to um, address the uh, discrimination and stigma and fear and and uh, all the craziness that was thrown our way uh, during those years. But the and you mentioned Prop 64. You know, this was a proposition that was actually on the ballot here in California that would have quarantined people with with AIDS. And, you know, this is a time where a lot of people in California didn't, still didn't really understand how uh, HIV was transmitted. You know, they thought, a lot of people thought you could get it through the air or by sitting on the toilet seat or getting it from a waiter at a restaurant. I mean, this was the, this was the thinking. So this craven uh, politician, um, Lyndon Roosh, who was sort of a fringe candidate, presidential candidate, he got this thing on the ballot. And it really looked like it was going to pass. You know, it was a really mm-hmm. scary moment for the community. But... This was um, a moment where the LGBT community really came together and really showed our power. That you know, the the community had been growing in, in strength and and people were coming out in the years and in, in, in the 70s. But by the early 80s, you know, this was um, a question of life or death. And so, you know, you were a witness to all this, so you already know this. But Prop 64 really required everybody to uh, to show up. So gay men and, and lesbians who had previously this been kind of separate communities, there wasn't really a lot of overlap there. People had to come together and, and got to know each other through the course of this, right? And we did beat back Prop 64, um, and um, that was a major sort of uh, milestone in the development of our community. It really showed uh, our strength, and it brought in a lot of allies, too, because we needed the straight community to understand what these issues were as well. And, yeah, in terms of the, the material, the footage, that's the fun, one of the fun parts of making a documentary like this is you just scour the planet for amazing um, archival and our local ABC affiliate here, uh, they were amazing. They, they opened up the vault to us. And I've seen so many uh, films on this topic. I mean, almost everything that's out there I've seen. But the footage that they provided to us, I'd never seen before. It was footage from the very, very early days, footage of West Hollywood, um, footage of uh, uh, some, some early vigils in West Hollywood in like 1982, uh, 83, footage of the uh, No on 64 campaign uh, protests and, and the victory party of No on 64, which was shown in the film. So 
yeah, ACLA itself had a ton of material that was just sitting in boxes. You know, when we first started, the truck pulled up in front of my house, <laughs> unloading box after box after box of videotapes. And the um, Commitment to Life, where the title comes from uh, of our film is Commitment to Life. That was the name of the yearly fundraisers that APLA started in 85. That was the first one, and it went till the um, mid-'90s, uh, went on for about 12 years. And so the, all of these, uh, um, all these uh, uh, fundraisers were videotaped. So I had all the videotape and all the performances of all the, all, all the stars that made appearances. Amazing stuff that no one's ever seen before, and a lot of it's in the film. Yeah, it's, I, it was really important to see the depiction of a lot of the events that had happened. And the Noah 64, um, I don't know that it's even possible to capture some of the feelings and emotions that were going on around that because of the perspective a lot of young people have from today where, you know, things come up that are anti-gay and they they get fought down. Like, you know, we have, uh, you know, a lot of these horrible bills are passing in conservative state houses, but then a lot of them are getting vetoed and everything else. And so there is sort of this perspective of, you know, right will prevail. Well, back at that, in those days when No One 64 came up, we had very little of that history. We had defeated the Briggs Initiative, which was an initiative outlawing gay people from being teachers. But it was, um, and, but the fear of AIDS, and they, when they said quarantine, the implication was almost like internment camps. It was not, it wasn't like quarantine for COVID where you just, you know, lock your, yourself in your room for two weeks. It was, you know, very right. undefined as to what that was. So this felt very much like, like hard persecution. And you mentioned in the film that this all came down, you know, within 10 years of homosexuality just being legal in California. Um, so we were, we were coming off that kind of era. Um, one thing that wasn't in the film and you probably wouldn't have even had visibility into, I was working the phones actually in the APLA offices because they had offices that they opened up for phone banks for No One 64. And we had lists of people to call that the different um, uh, gay and lesbian organizations had compiled you know, calling them to ask for funding, you know, to defeat the No on 64. And so many of the people we called were furious and demanding to know how we got their number and take them off that mm. list. And the paranoia was just enormous. So even though there was a strong coming together, there was also a whole lot of fear that um, – you know, I think today's people don't even realize. That's such an interesting perspective. Um, yeah, what was the organization called? MECLA, which was um, an early uh, lobbying organization for gay and lesbian community at the time, gay and lesbian. No B or no T quite right. yet, right? Um, but MECLA, they didn't right. have the word gay in it. So if you made a, if you made a donation to MECLA, your accountant wouldn't know that you made a donation to a gay organization. You know, that was the level of secrecy. And like you said, yeah, it was. I can understand why people would be so fierce because there, there was still 
um, there was still a, a danger to being out of the closet uh, at that time. I mean, AIDS really forced the issue, as we really talk about in the film. Um, and Hollywood was, you know, for the reputation that Hollywood has as being this sort of liberal place and gay people were able to work behind the scenes um, fairly comfortably for many, many years, it was still a very closeted industry and a very conservative industry. And, um, you know, we didn't have any openly gay stars. We didn't have any openly gay uh, executives. Um, that, that all changed. Um, but AIDS really forced the issue. David Geffen was probably at that time the one of the biggest powerhouses in the industry and um, did so much for, for AIDS because it affected him personally. It affected, you know, he had a, he talks about the stack of uh, Rolodex cards of all the people that he lost and he kept a stack of cards. And um, he came out very famously at one of the Commitment to Life award ceremonies. And at the time, you know, now people kind of yawn when somebody comes out, <laughs> out of the closet publicly like that. It doesn't right. have the same impact. But, you know, at that time, that was a very, very, very big deal. No, it was. And um, it, it, it was interesting. Um, and, and as you're following the arc in, in the story that you present on the film of APLA's relationship with Hollywood and, um, you know, how it got very big. I, I mean, and from, from the ground level on the outside, that wasn't necessarily always a positive. Because you know we're doing the AIDS walk and you know you know we were we were walking because we had friends dying. I it's like that in the first AIDS walk, my best friend had just been diagnosed and um, a year later he was gone. But we walked the first AIDS walk together, and you know mm-hmm. and, the, and then seeing APLA kind of rose as this monolithic building and you know uh, all this stuff and it was like okay. But what's it doing? You know, what's it doing on the ground here? Um, was was always you know kind of a a big question. Um, you got a lot of heart wrenching stories out of people who were they were part of APLA, um, but they they were part of APLA because they had very human stories. What were some of the ones that touched you the most? Oh, there's so many stories. I mean, that's that was. Uh... One of the hardest things in this is finding, you know, when we interviewed people, they were really, they were reliving such traumatic time. You know, Phil Wilson, for example, incredible activist for many, many years, since basically day one of the epidemic, or, you know, he's been there for us. And he's recounting um, his, his, uh, his, his lover, Chris Brownlee, you know, he tells the whole story of how Chris got sick and they were both diagnosed around the same time. And, you know, Chris was, and he was in, he was, Phil was fairly healthy, but Chris was getting sicker and sicker and sicker. And the two of them together built the Chris Brownlee Hospice near Dodger Stadium. You know, that was um, AHF, AIDS Healthcare Foundation, actually started with the AIDS Hospice Foundation. And one of the first things they did was to build this hospice because um, there were very few places for people to go to die, essentially, um, mm-hmm. people who had nowhere else to go. And just to hear Phil Wilson recount that story and then tell in great, really wrenching emotional detail about um, the death of his, his, his husband. They were married pretty early on. Uh, not legally, but they were married. Um, you know, it, it just right. breaks your heart. Um, but that was the thing. Like, so many people use that, that grief and that trauma to, to motivate them, to push them forward into activism. And Phil talks about, well, you know, I just there was just so much to do. I just had to 
figure out what's the next thing I needed to do. What's the next thing I need to do? And I'll get back to the grief later. And, you know, so many people uh, are experiencing the same thing that Phil talks about that, you know, years later, that PTSD is sort of resurfacing. And a lot of people are having that, uh, especially with COVID, bringing back all of these memories of that time. A lot of people tell me that they're they're really um, uh, reliving a lot of the uh, what we went through in the 80s and the 90s. Uh, that's that's absolutely true, and I think that that also it it speaks to two things with your film. One is I think that is going to trigger some PTSD around it because the Los Angeles story has not been told. I mean, I right. the thing that I loved about um, uh, many many points in in your film was thank God he brought that up. Thank God he brought that up. You know, it's like. You know, it's like pinpointing different things in history uh, of the AIDS history that that weren't mentioned. Um, you brought up Madonna, for example. Um, uh, you know, in conjunction with a lot of the the Hollywood celebrities that were stepping up, and there were several celebrities that stepped up sort of within the wave. In other words, it had started to become somewhat trendy to be part of it, and they were kind of stepping up behind that and then there were ones that stepped up when it wasn't safe like elizabeth taylor and madonna right. and different people like that where they, they they neither had to and when they did they did it super strong but um i just wrote an article about madonna with her appearance um just this week on the grammys and what she said there which was sort of reminiscent you know addressing you know a lot of the queer kids and it was sort of reminiscent of statements she made stepping out about people with AIDS um, at the end of the, the 1980s. And when I went to try to research it online, because I wanted to get some of her actual quotes from back in the day, and you can't find them because it was before the internet, mm. and they weren't really there. Right. So it was like, yeah. it was amazing that, that you know, you had, you know, those those depictions in it. Um, one thing that comes up a lot in the film, and I have to tell you, in in the living in the time, I was not even aware of this, was uh, a lot of kind of racial tension around the building of organizations to help um, people with AIDS. Um, can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, it touches on what you mentioned before about APLA being perceived as this behemoth, you know, in the city and having that big building. And there were tensions there, undoubtedly. And I, I'm really grateful to APLA Health, who, who sponsored this film, you know, really grateful to, for, for them to uh, be willing to acknowledge all of those tensions and put that in the movie. Because at the beginning, APLA, the perception was that this was a service organization that uh, really was focused on the, the West Hollywood, West Side gay, white, affluent males, you know. But that was um, really not entirely true. And so they had a lot of trouble with that, that, that uh, perception. Uh, so the, and also their location. You know, they were located in West, West Hollywood, West Hollywood. That's very far, physically far. I mean, you know, L.A. is huge. So if you look at the geography of L.A., the people that um, have, you know, more uh, disenfranchised uh, uh, communities, it was like physically far to get the services they needed from APLA, right? So there was a lot of conversation and efforts to bring the services of APLA to other communities, but that took a long time. And so in the meantime, you had people like Jewel Taze Williams, uh, who ran the Catch One uh, Disco, which was the largest uh, black uh, 
gay club uh, west of Mississippi, uh, as someone says in the film. And she, uh, with Reverend Carl Bean, started the Minority AIDS Project. And that was really a service organization to directly address the needs of people of color. That was the first one here in L.A. And then we had Vienna Star Human Services, who started to address the needs of the Latino community also. So, you know, everyone, uh, every community had their own story, and everyone had a part to play in this. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad that she picked up on that, that story because it, it really isn't talked about uh, as much as it should be. And even at the time, that was um, – uh, even within the black community, I and mean, Jewel had such a, a hard time just getting a lot of her community to pay attention because, uh, as she said, mm-hmm. well, she said, I don't think it's in the film, but she said to me a lot of uh, the people, her people didn't even think that there were black gay people. You know, this is just not something that is in our community. And it was very closeted, you know, and, and the church played a big role in that too. So she really had to, to fight uh, for visibility. And she did an incredible job, and she's, I'm so grateful that she's in the film and gets to tell her story. And I think a lot of people are going to get to know her for the first time, and I'm really um, excited about that. Yeah, it's, it was an interesting scenario. Um, and I, I, I guess part of me is um, the perception of, quote-unquote, the affluent white community um, is painful for me to hear just because – you know, I, I lost 40 of my closest friends and, you know, probably 100 some acquaintances. And there's not a single person in that group that I would define as being, quote, unquote, affluent. Um, I mean, right. these are waiters and gardeners. And, you know, it's like so it it, it wasn't wasn't bad. I think the, the Rock Hudson um, thing and, you know, seeing big name designers have it and everything else. Um, made it feel like every white person was was one of them, and and that wasn't wasn't the case. But um, even in the day, I was aware of you know I was aware of the the black, black club. Um, I was also aware I was not welcome there um, because it was very much perceived as a you know safe zone for you know um, black men. Period. Um, but the other thing that that was a standout at the time was so many of the black men who were gay that I knew were to use the current term down low. In other words, they were not out gay men. They were gay, but they were still hiding within the community and participating, which is why a lot of black women became a huge risk group um, because their Mm -hmm. husbands were bi or, at least doing by behavior and um, and spreading it that way. Um, so grateful for, you know, the work of Reverend Bean and Jewel, um, you know, what they established there. Um, I know you had um, Kermo Brown um, speaking in the film. What was his involvement? I was actually kind of surprised at his comments um, in it, being that he – you know, probably didn't arrive in Hollywood until, you know, about the year 2000 after, you know, most of the biggest crisis point had had been over. Um, what, how, how did he get involved? Well, we had the same agent. <laughs> That's how bad we found him. Oh. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I wanted to have, I wanted to have people that were not of the generation that didn't, that didn't live through it, you know, that came of age later. 
Yeah. So we did interview people who who came to LA later, and you know, Karamo is, is just a, a just a a wonderful, warm, smart uh, man, and also did HIV/AIDS uh, work in his life before he became a, a celebrity, TV celebrity. You know, he he has a, a really interesting perspective on all this, and he really cares about his community. So I thought, well, well I'd be curious what Karamo has to say about all this. And he, you know, he he wasn't here at the time, but he knows his history, and I'm really glad that he's in the film. And he does talk about the experience of going to uh, Jewel's Catch One um, uh, later. And he, uh, I don't think it's in the film, but he's saying how he would go there and people would come up to him and, and, and hand him a, a condom and say, love yourself. You know, and he thought that was a, such a powerful uh, thing to hear at that time and something that he needed to hear. And, uh, you know, what you're saying about the download, yeah, Jewel, Jewel talked about that too. I mean, she, she, she had such a hard time. I mean, there, there was such a... Um, she really had to battle the, the the desire of the community to just not talk about it, not look at it. There's a few people in the film who kind of address the same thing. Um, she she and Reverend Carl Bean, um, Reverend Carl Bean started a, a, a gay affirming church, a same sex affirming church, uh, uh, and um, you know they actually had people with AIDS in the ministry there, and there were people with AIDS uh, in the congregation and. You know that it, it was just a whole other story in, in the African American community than it was for the white community, and the issues were different. So they needed to create their own institutions, and they needed to create their own, even the way they would fundraise. You know, they couldn't put on a commitment to life. So, as Jewel says in the film, we had to do a barbecue, and, and, and they did a, a thing called Diva Simply Singing for for many years. I think it's still going on, actually, uh, where they would have uh, different African American uh, female singers uh, do do a big fundraiser. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, it's, there's just so many different stories. Uh, so the challenge of the movie was to sort of figure out how to make it all work as a movie and feel like you're um, moving forward through time. Yeah, it's, it is, it is, it's a film that should go into education. I mean, it is, it is so comprehensive and captures so much that, you know, it should be, you know, archive not well. It should be seen. That sounds like <laughs> we'll put it in a closet and hope hope it does good. Now it should be, but it should be an ever present module um, in education. People should know about it. Should be part of of learning. Um, one thing that you do capture in it is uh, the Reagan administration response, um, and obviously you. You could only cap, you know, because you already have so much in the film. Like, and a, a whole film could have been done on that alone. Um, tell us what what that was like putting it in the film. What happened for people who don't know, and was there things that you wanted to put in but couldn't? Well, Reagan was elected in 1980, and he came in in a wave of. Uh, uh, sort of a right-leaning turn in, in the in voting populace, right? So, and he was backed by evangelical Christians. And the evangelical movement that came of age in the mid-70s, I mean, they were never really involved in politics before, but they started getting involved in politics and churches were getting involved in politics and preaching from the sermon, uh, from the, the pulpit about how people should vote. And uh, so Reagan was sort of swept into office and so he was indebted to that community, right? And so when AIDS uh, happened, the communities that were initially affected by AIDS, these were gay men, uh, people of color, uh, intravenous drug users, 
uh, sex workers, uh, women, you know, it's it, it, groups that didn't have necessarily any political power. And in particular with gay people, you know, Reagan couldn't have been seen to be lifting a finger to help gay people, especially because of how ultimately we found out that this disease was transmitted, right? So there was just um, a willful denial, willful ignorance. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a famous um, press conference early on where Reagan's uh, press secretary is sort of joking about AIDS with the uh, reporters in the room and laughing yeah. about it. You know, there they was just such um, cruelty there. So there were, it was years of federal blindness to it. Although C. Everett Koop, who was the Surgeon General, he was actually very good on AIDS, and um, Reagan ultimately, uh, it took about five years for him, for him to even say the word publicly, and it was Elizabeth Taylor who got him to appear for the first time at an AIDS uh, fundraiser in Washington, D.C., and say the word AIDS out loud. You know, so it's just shocking how long it took. Um, so, yeah, the, the Reagan administration does not have a very positive record on this, and um, uh, subsequent uh, administrations have, have done, you know, diff, uh, handle things differently. And we, we do show various administrations in the film over time and how they uh, did or didn't, uh, uh, what their record was on this issue. Yeah, no, it was it was good. And that, that one piece, yeah, the um, press conference where they made fun of um, people with AIDS and, and the epidemic, um, was absolutely horrific. Um, you also portray um, Representative Dannemeyer. Sure, Rob, can I interject? I was in the briefing sure. room that day. Oh, you were? I was in the briefing room. I worked for United Press International. I was in, when, when Larry and the front three rows started doing that shit, I felt like just melting into the floor. And there was a couple of other closeted reporters in the room at the same time. I cannot begin to tell you how excruciatingly painful that was. Mm. Wow. So anyway, sorry to interrupt, but yeah. I wasn't going to let that no, one go no. by without saying something, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you know? No, thank so, you for sharing. Pardon that. me, guys. I just, to this day, I still get pissed about that. Yeah. And it's been 40-something years. So anyway, sorry. Uh, I didn't mean to interrupt. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I know. So, so our bottom line message is we're old, but um, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, now, the, the the other thing too, though, is um, you had uh, Dana Meyer in the film, and you had Jesse Helms in the film, and these were just absolutely rat, rabid, hateful creatures, you know, in terms of gay people that uh, by today's standards are somewhat shocking. Um, what what did you take away from, I'm sure you watched even more footage of them than you could put in the film, but what was your impression of the people of the past versus people today? Like we were talking about um, uh, Sarah um, Huckabee Sanders and, um, you know, a lot of the mouthpieces now that are so anti-trans. Um, how, how do you juxtapose those exposures. Yeah, well, William Dannemeyer was an Orange County congressman, and he made a, uh, his career on the backs of this. You know, he was not the person that introduced Prop 64. That was Lyndon LaRouche. But he certainly got on that bandwagon, and he was a big supporter of Prop 64. He got himself on TV and 
I guess he figured, you know, I don't know, did he really believe the things he was saying about uh, gay people? And he called bathhouses uh, AIDS factories and, you know, really just and introducing all these um, really uh, irrational and, um, uh, and scientifically unsound bills uh, to uh, make life a lot more difficult for people who are HIV positive, right, or who had AIDS. Uh, so what, did he believe all the things he was doing? Did he think it would just get him votes? I mean, he was in office for decades, so who knows? Maybe it, it worked for him, I guess. But he wasn't really the mainstream of the Republican Party. I mean, you look, you look around now, I mean, I don't really hear too much coming from them about AIDS, although maybe I'm, I'm willfully not paying attention. They seem to be much more obsessed with, uh, with the Drag Queen Story Hour and just picking these really divisive social issues, and that's all they've got to run on. And that's the mainstream of the party now. You know, like the Lyndon LaRouche, who was never, he was a presidential candidate. He never actually won any office, but, you know, he was, he was considered a real fringe um, uh, conspiracy theorist, a real out there kind of person. But like, that's, that's what we've got in Congress now, a lot of them. So it's pretty depressing, but I also like to think about people like Henry Waxman, who was a congressman mm-hmm. who, uh, from the West Side, who really was a hero in this, you know, and he was there for, on this issue from the very, very beginning. He was on the right committees. He was a friend to the gay community. He helped get, he helped release the first round of funding. Um, and he was there for decades uh, fighting for funding. And, and ultimately the Ryan White Care Act was the mechanism to which uh, millions and millions and millions of dollars were finally released uh, to, um, uh, through the federal government to, to respond to this. So, you know, I think we have to, we have to point out who the villains were, but we also have to remember who the heroes were in all this. And I think the film, doesn't really tell you how to think, but we're just showing the way people behave. You know, some people did the right thing and deserve a place of honor, and some people, um, well, let's just say they, they didn't really uh, show the best of who we are as people. Yeah, it, it, it's hard, and this is, I guess, uh, like one of the trigger points for me, and for a, a lot of people at the time, because, you know, and you do point this out in the film, that a lot of people, when they, they came down with AIDS, the call home was, by the way, I'm gay. By the way, I have AIDS. So it was like the, you know, so many people were literally outed because they got sick. And the, the hard part for those of us who weren't even sick, but who, who that was part of our daily lives, is we'd go home to our straight families who, you know, accepted us on certain levels. But they would then turn around and they would vote for Dannemeyer. They would be, you know, they would be, that would be who would represent them. And they couldn't, there was this paradox and trying to deal with, well, how can my family really love me? They welcome me home. They feed me dinner. But then this is what they do in the voting box. And I know this is what they're doing in the voting box. And how do, how do I deal with, that, um, you know, it, the the complexity of the vitriol and support was 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 hard. Um, you do have there's a really heartwarming um, person in the movie, um, the mother who um, both her sons were gay and both died, and she went to Congress to fight for um, medication. Uh, can you tell her a little, little bit about her story? That was Brenda Freeberg, and yeah, she's this um, incredible woman who was active uh, with uh, APLA, and she um, 
she tells the story in the movie uh, of both of her sons uh, and she said to she like so many other people she used that grief as the motivation to fight for her sons you know and when she first started fighting for her sons she was fighting for access to medication and then when they when they passed away she did never stop fighting she went to Washington to lobby you know but she she said she first joined mother support groups but they were just sort of sitting around you know talking but she needed to do more she needed to get out there and she was just a she was like in the corporate world and a lot of people left their corporate jobs to go work for places like APLA you know for probably a lot lower salary because they felt this is something they needed to do or there's people like David Wexler in the film who was sort of a a very high-powered entertainment attorney um, who went to uh, be the chair of the board of APLA and for a very very long time that was what he did. He, he still was a. He still had his uh, job as a lawyer, but he devoted every other waking second to to APLA um, and essentially being a lobbyist, you know, and figuring out how to work the system, how to um, how to uh, uh, find allies in the government, how to get to have a meeting with the mayor, how to he found an ally in Henry Waxman, he found allies in the uh, in Congress and Senate. Um, and ultimately, it led to the election of Bill Clinton, and his record on AIDS is, is very mixed, as I'm sure you know. But it was really a completely a complete sea change from the two previous administrations, Reagan and Bush, on AIDS. Yeah, absolutely. What um, obviously your film has this huge impact on people like Brody and myself, um, who were there, and you know, and, and are appreciating it from from somebody, i.e., you coming in and chronicling it. Um, what has your reaction been to younger people who, from younger people who did not live through that, who don't quite embrace how horrible it really was? Well, I'll, I'll let you know because I don't know yet because we haven't. <laughs> a lot of people haven't seen the movie yet. But um, I, you know, I had a few screenings uh, when we were making the movie and editing the movie. I had some test screenings, and I, invite, I tried to invite some people on the younger side to come see this and. This was all new to them. You know, they knew something really bad happened a long time ago, but nobody talks about it really anymore. And I can imagine how frustrating that might be for older people who live through this to see the younger generation and just to, you know, on one hand, isn't it It's fantastic that they don't have to live in fear that they could come out and explore their sexuality and not sort of live with this sort of death hanging over their head at all times, you know, like previous generations did. But at the same time, I mean, we wouldn't be here where we're at today with um, the medications that are keeping people with HIV healthy and undetectable and keeping people who are negative keep staying that way with PrEP. We wouldn't have all of this uh, uh, progress um, uh, without all the people that uh, we lost along the way. You know, so I think right. it's just super important for the uh, young people to know that. And also we have marriage equality today. A lot of people feel that you know, marriage equality is the phoenix that grew from the ashes of AIDS, you know, that uh, finally we we had to show the world who we were uh, because we were sick and we were visibly dying. And, you know, there were uh, – uh, the, the world got to see uh, how we loved each other, how we cared for each other, and um, how we were family for each other. You know, we were chosen family for each other. And uh, that we had to fight for the, the, the legal recognition of, of marriage, that our relationships are – um, equal and uh, you know we had to fight for that. That's a direct outgrowth of AIDS. I don't know if you feel the same way, but that's that's something I feel strongly. About. Uh, I 
Yeah, no, I totally agree. I mean, it was a mass outing, um, and to your point, there were heroic um, efforts. I mean, it's, you know, as gay men, we were showing up to each other's hospital rooms before anybody knew how it was transmitted, and we didn't care. Right. It's like we we were going to show up anyway. It's like, you know, and the hospital staff was all, you know, clothed in hazmat suits and all this stuff, and it was, you know, we'd go in with just face masks and and gloves. You know, it was it was like these are our people, and you know, if if I'm going to get it this way, then you know, so be it. But I'm not going to hide from them. Um, yeah, it was it was a, a rough time. Um, we've only got three minutes left, uh, so the film is just hitting the film uh, festival circuit now. What where can people eventually find it? Well, uh, I don't have information yet, but, you know, our world premiere is this weekend at the Santa Barbara International Film Festival, uh, this Saturday the 11th and Sunday the 12th. And then we will most likely be programmed to other film festivals all around the country and around the world over the, the coming year. That's usually how these things play out. Uh, so keep an eye at commitmenttolifemovie.com is, is our website. Uh, we're, we're just getting going on our social media. That's not set up yet, but, you know, lots of things to do. And, but uh, the movie is, uh, is, is going to be seen, I, I hope, by as many people as possible. I love film festivals because that's a way for us all to get together to see a movie on the big screen the way it was meant to be seen with an audience. And I think seeing a film like this with a group, I think, would be more powerful than watching it um, at home, which ultimately was probably where most people will see it. But, you know, getting to see a movie, any movie at a, at a film festival, a lot of times it's the only chance you're going to get to see it with an audience. So I'm I'm really excited yeah. to be able to share this share this with people. Well, I'll be there in spirit, and I agree. I think watching this in a room with people and and having a combined reaction, just like we had, um, you know, combined reaction at the time. You know, we were all in rooms together, reacting together. Um, well, Jeffrey, as always, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Um, really appreciate it. Hope you come back with your next films because I'm still anxious to see those as well. Um, and they're very state of, of production. Um, and I want to thank Brody for being Brody and um, his work with the L.A. Blade. We will be back again next week, same back time, same back channel, with something um, very important that you will need to be hearing about. Um, until then, we will talk to you later. You've been listening to Rated LGBT Radio.